Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to talk about games to play with your family. As we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, it's getting into the holiday season now, and so we're going to be continuing our month of specials with some games that would be great to play as you you know go home and spend time with your families for the holidays. Exactly. So first, we'll clarify a little bit. We're not talking about the very super gamer families here. So if you play games, like already a lot of these your games that, that we're talking about with your family, you will know much better than us what they will like. So each family like that has their own preferences, certain games that they like. And for that, we just recommend looking at our reviews and seeing which ones they would like based on those. Right. What we're talking about here is a family that would be interested in playing some games, like you've played maybe Shoots and Ladders as a family before, or some of these other like older style games, roll and move games, and like Monopoly or something like that. And you want to branch out and show them something new, something that they'll enjoy that's a lot of fun, or even just your family is curious about playing a game. Like They know that you like uh, board games and that kind of thing, but they've never really played any and they'd be willing to sit down and try something out. Right. So we're really looking at sort of novice game players in terms of, you know, family members that aren't you, obviously. I don't imagine we're listening to her. We have a lot of novice game players who listen to our podcast. But if there are, welcome. We hope that you find it accessible. Yes. But um, so that's really who we're considering. And given that, we came up with some sort of criteria to think about the games that we were going to look at. First of all, we wanted to pick games that were relatively straightforward they might have some mechanics that are a little bit difficult to grasp but there's not a lot of subterfuge and not necessarily there's there's not a lot of depth because there are and all of these are great games we wouldn't recommend them otherwise but just games that are straightforward and easy to grasp more or less from the get-go yes and we also wanted to minimize a little bit of the conflict. So many of these games have slightly lower conflict. They're not uh, the Catans of the world where you know, you're directly you know, fighting with each other and trying to you know, make deals and that kind of thing. These can be more of a player versus game type thing or uh, the conflict and the interaction is a little bit of a different sort that prevents us from being the kind of game that everyone runs off at the end of the game and is angry at the rest of the family for the next few days. Right. And then we also, of course, wanted to pick games that were indicative of certain things. You know, we wanted to pick games that were going to lead you into explorations of more games if it turns out, for example, that maybe your parents just really love this sort of thing and they want to get into it as more than a one, you know, one-time, two-time thing and get into the hobby gaming scene. So we wanted to pick games that would allow for sort of a smooth transition into those sorts of more complicated, more higher-level gamers games, Mm -hmm. but give you a strong introduction to the mechanics and be a good springboard to jump off from. Exactly. So those are the criteria that we were thinking about when we chose these games. And here's what we thought. So, for the games themselves, one of the sort of genres, types of games that we thought of first, just because they're so much fun to play and they're a great way to introduce new players to the contemporary board game scene, were social board games. So, these are going to be things like code names. You know, it's all about communication, and there's just an inherent lightness and fun. 
that goes along with the theme. You know, you're spies, but it's also just this sort of word game, kind of like a modern Pictionary is how I've been thinking of it. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Everyone, I think, that we've ever introduced it to has just loved it. Yes, and for me, that actually includes my parents, who are definitely not gamers. My mom plays regular card games like Rummy and other things like that. My dad tries not to touch any games. <laughs> Uh, but he and my mom both really enjoyed Codenames when I brought it out, and we played it a few times when they were down here in D.C. And it's a really, really fun game where one person's a spy master, and you have to give one-word clues to choose the words that, uh, that you're assigned, pretty much. Very fun, very easy, very quick, easy to explain, and the rounds just keep going. This is a game where it just flows. You just go one round, and then another one, another one, and then all of a sudden it's late and time for everyone to go to bed. Right. And it, you know, it's just hours of fun. You can keep going. And one of the great things about it, too, is that they're starting to introduce, not expansions, but new variations. There's the Codenames Pictures, which we played pretty recently. And it's obviously pictures instead of words, but... It keeps that same sort of fun irreverence. You know, you're never going to have, like, a glass of milk or a rabbit. It's always going to be like, this is a train that's barreling through a wormhole. So, like, all the pictures are just completely crazy. So, you know, if if your family really enjoys playing Codenames, then you can say, okay, well, you know, there's this new version, too. And then, you know, kind of grow your collection and grow the games that you like to play. Yeah, and there are also some people who are very comfortable with their families for code names deep undercover right this is a recommendation with a very big caveat <laughs> this is an 18 and older kind of game so if you are at the point with your family where you're sitting around and telling sex jokes and playing cards against humanity with them then you would like this game otherwise I would say stay away from it. This yeah. is not the kind of thing where you want to explain to your mother what furries are. Yeah, that's a very delicate subject to broach. Yes, but I know that there are some families who are like that, so if you are, go crazy. highly recommend that. That's right. And then there are other games, other social games, you know, just lots of fun, lots of laughs that are even less mechanical. You know, there's less of an engine at the center, and so a game like that would be snake oil. You know, you're literally just given these things and you have to try to sell them and you have to try to use funny accents and and funny you know manners of speaking and so it's just that's all there is to it pretty much you just get one person who's the judge they are a certain personality that they get to choose either one side or the other from a card that they drew so this could be you know a california girl or you know a New York businessman or something like that. They have all these different funny things, maybe caveman or someone from the future or all these things. And everyone else has cards in their hand and they get to play these cards. And when they do, they have to sell the combination of cards that they put down to that person. So, you know, what from your hand would work for, or what combination of things would work for a caveman? Let's say, you know, you have you know, a stick and, you know, a stone of some sort. It's like, oh, now you can use use this one to bash someone's head and this one to do something else. And it's just like, you know, you have a combination. Now we put them together and now you have a stone on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have a lot of different funny combinations that you can do and you have to be really creative. And 
I think that this is a really fun game and something more than apples to apples, but not necessarily as controversial as Cards Against Humanity. You're right. Because everything is in the eye of, you know, who you're selling it to. So you can be as innocent and clean as you want to be because they're just these are just two words or two things that you're putting together and you're selling them to a certain personality. But as I've seen with my friends, it can devolve into a lot of other things too. This is true. This is true. But it is very easy to keep it lighthearted. You know, obviously there's just going to be a lot of laughs and it's a lot of fun to try to think on the fly, which, you know, maybe if your family's anything like my family, you tend to fall into routines and you do mostly the same stuff day in and day out. So it can be fun to sort of break that cycle and just have a, a different sort of evening. Yeah. And along those lines with like the creativity and uh, trying to break out of a certain mold kind of thing, you have Dixit. And Dixit is uh, a game in which one person who is the judge for this round, pretty much, they have a hand of cards. They choose one of them and give a clue. The clue could be one word, like a sentence, a sound, whatever they want to be a clue. Everyone else looks at their hands and chooses whatever card they think in their hand best embodies that clue. These cards are all taken, shuffled together without anyone knowing, and then revealed. So you have however many players, that's how many cards you have out. Now you take your voting tokens, pretty much, and you then place these on which one you think is the one that the clue giver put. Mm. And if you get it right, you get a certain number of points, and the clue giver gets a certain number of points. If you get it wrong, the person that who's you chose gets the points. That kind of thing. And the fun part about this is that the clue giver does not want to be extremely obvious about what theirs is. Because if everyone chooses theirs, they get zero points and everyone else gets points. Ah. So the ideal is you want to have at least one person choose yours, but no one else. That's how like you get more points than anyone else. Interesting. It's a really fun game. The pictures on it are really cool, really fun. All of them are abstract, like crazy pictures, and they're bright colored and the game itself is very simple. There is a rules aspect with the points thing to it, which is pretty uh, good and, and definitely helps and make it a little bit more structured than something like Snake Oil. But it's still extremely light, extremely fun, and highly recommended. Right. And along those lines, with the, the sort of surrealist images and the wanting to communicate concepts with very few you know, very few clues. One of the heavier sort of social games that we wanted to recommend, just because it is so much fun and it is so uh, sort of different, is Mysterium. We've talked about Mysterium before. We reviewed it once. But basically, one person is a ghost, uh, and the other players play ghost, ghost detectives, people who are trying to solve the mystery of how this person died. So you have three sets of cards that are laid out. You have cards representing the weapon, cards representing the person, and cards representing the place. And so each of the people has a different set of these cards, and the clue giver has to try to give them sort of these surrealist dreamscape images that will prompt them to choose their card from among the center 
you know, selection. So it's it's a really good way to see, you know, how on the same wavelength you are. Maybe you think that, you know, you and your mom have always been really close and really had the same thought patterns. Well, this is a, a real fun way for you to see if maybe that's the truth. You know, maybe it takes three rounds of her passing you clues before you finally realize, oh, of course, it was the, you know, fire poker. Yeah. And uh, it's it's just very different and very unique and a lot of fun. And the artwork for it is really cool. The... Uh, gameplay is very simple, and in general, it's a game that I really enjoy. So, highly recommend it. Side note, as we said in the actual review, use the Polish rules. Please do. Uh, the American rules are extremely convoluted. Uh, they have a lot more pieces and like things in there that really don't add to the gameplay. Download yourself the PDF from Board Game Geek of the American translated Polish rules. Use them. You don't need all the other stuff. It makes it so much more simple, so much more fun. It's just so much more straightforward. Yeah. But next we wanted to transfer into pretty much my favorite category of games, which is cooperative games. Right. Which I also love. Yes. As, As per some of our favorites. Yeah. I wanted to start with talking a little bit about Forbidden Island. So Forbidden Island is one of the quintessential like co-op games that is very beginner, very easy, but still can be a lot of fun. So you're all on this island that's sinking, and you have to get these relics back to a certain point on the island without dying or you know getting drowned or anything like that. And so you move, and then whenever you move, certain tiles get flipped over. And then you can shore them up by using an action there. Each one of your characters also has a slightly different ability. So some of them can swim, some of them can shore up more tiles or ones that they are not on and other things like that. And so you have to collect sets of each of the different uh, relics in order to collect the relic. Right, the, there are cards that relate to each of those artifacts, and I believe it's four? Four of a kind. Four of a kind in your hand in order for you to obtain that relic, and then you have to make it back to the extraction point because the island is sinking and you have to get off the island with these artifacts. But it's a really great introduction to a concept that you see in a lot of cooperative games, which is economy of actions. Uh, you know, it's not enough to do a thing. You have to make sure that you're doing the thing as efficiently as possible and making sure that everyone is doing what their specific role really is is strong at. So, you know, like you mentioned, you have some people who are strong at swimming, some people who can shore up other tiles. So it's it's all about finding which characters are best suited to doing these sorts of things. And it encourages a lot of communication. And it's a lot of fun when you you know successfully pull it off. There's a real feeling of accomplishment. Like, yeah, we beat the game. We did it. Yeah. And definitely a fun one to check out. Uh, it's got some really cool artwork. Got a lot. The components are nice because they're big and they're like, you know, they're well made. And there's some of them are like, you know, the clear resin. Other ones are not and mm-hmm. like unique. So definitely a fun one, especially for a beginner cooperative game. Right. Uh, another cooperative game that is a little bit different, actually, which is uh, Hanabi. Hanabi is uh, tons of fun. It's got really strong theme. You've basically just got five different colors of fireworks. There's white, yellow, blue, green, red. And each of those sets of fireworks has numbers, one through five. Uh, There are three copies of the ones, two copies of each of the two, three, four, and then one copy of the five. And so each of the players has a hand with five of these fireworks in it. But instead of looking at their own hand, their hand faces outwards. 
So on your turn, you have to either play a card from your hand into one of the stacks, where the goal of the game is to stack each of the five colors in stacks of one to five. And if you, you know, finish the thing, then you get the full 25 points and so on and so forth. So you can play a card from your hand, or you can give a piece of information to one of your teammates who can't see their hand, which is really, really important because since you, for example, only have one copy of each five, you have to make sure that no one accidentally plays a five when it's not called for. Then the limiting mechanic, of course, is that you have to discard a clock token each time you give a piece of information. So you have to very strategically balance, okay, when do I give information versus when do I, when am I confident enough in my hand to play my cards versus the final thing that you can do is discard a card from your hand in order to get a time token back. So it's, it's all about sort of, you know, finding the right balance and being able to communicate as efficiently as possible within the confines of the, the game, which only allows you to say, these cards are threes or these cards are fives. You know, you, you can't say this single card is a red five, don't do anything with it. Like there's, there are constraints on how you communicate, which is another pretty common thing when it comes to cooperative games. Yeah, pretty much you can't say a color and the number of a card in one turn. You right. can either say one or the other. And you have to point out, you know, all of the the cards, for example, if you have threes, you have to point out this, this, and this are threes, even if you just wanted them to know that one of those was a three. Right. And so very interesting, very fun, and definitely a, a good, unique co-op game. Another one that we've talked about a few times, though mostly in the legacy aspect, is Pandemic. One of the most quintessential games in a game library absolutely, is Pandemic. It's awesome. It's a game about saving the world, and who doesn't want to do that? So you're saving the world from a disease. You're going around your scientists and other different people who are trying to make sure that these four different diseases don't spread across the world. So another game that really involves the action economy because you only have a certain number of actions, and then you also have the special characters in mm-hmm. each one, so they each have different special actions that they can do, or more actions and other things like that, which really encourages a lot of communication. So, you know, I can do this, what if I do go here, here, and here, how about I go here, and then do this action, other things like that. So, definitely fosters a lot of good communication, good, really good fun, I think. I would agree. One thing before we do move on from co-op games that's important to know, you know, when you're playing with family, you're obviously wanting to make sure that you all have a good time. And there are sort of pitfalls that I feel like people fall into with cooperative games sometimes in which because efficiency is so important, you end up having one or two players thinking it through and then dictating to the other players, okay, you should do this or you should do that. And I know that a lot of our friends have gotten very frustrated with me in particular. I'm very guilty of doing this, you know, because I'll see a, a path forward. But you can't take the decision away from someone. And it's very important to recognize that you can contribute to that conversation, but you really have to make sure that everyone's having a fun time and everyone's getting to do what they want to do. And at the end of the day, it's a game. And if, you know, you end up losing by just that one last turn because you couldn't get that last disease cube, just play another game. It'll be fine. Exactly. I actually really like co-op games because of that tension of that, you know, almost losing or even just losing, but now let's do it again and let's get it right this time. And I really think that not dictating what everyone does 
really adds to that because you know if you're just talking and saying like you know why don't you go here like you know i think that we need you in this part of the world for pandemic to or you know to take care of this disease and then let them think of whatever path they're doing and give advice when you're asked not as much when you want to and be like you should go here 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 and here and do this and that's it that's going to be your turn then you're going to go here 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 because then you're just playing by yourself right it's a single player game at that point there's just other people who are following along exactly so that's the one caveat with co-op games but now we'll move into some of the little bit heavier tiling games more traditionally competitive games yes exactly the first one that i wanted to mention was uh lanterns now, Lanterns is a very simple game. It's like dominoes if dominoes had four sides. Sounds simple enough. Yep. You're matching colors and placing the tiles in the spots that will give you the most matched colors and the colors that you want matched. So that's the first aspect of the game. You have a hand of tiles. You place them in different parts, wherever you think is best for you. And you collect cards that are colored cards. So you have reds, purples, greens, all the different colors. You then use these when you collect them to get sets. So there are sets that say, you know, you need four of one color or five of one color uh, or one of each color. And this is where you get the points. Mm. So you you have to actually do that before you place a, a tile in a turn. So turn order does matter. And I think that this is one of those games that can really help cement that. Because you really need to know that this is the action that you have to take beforehand, and then you have you can take these other actions. It's very light, very fun, and definitely a great introduction to tiling games that's decently competitive, but not cutthroat. Right, because that's something that I feel like we really want to avoid when we're talking about games that we play with our families. Yes, exactly. Um, another tiling game, which is a lot of fun and which is a, a little bit different um, than Lanterns or really than any other tiling game, is Between Two Cities. You draw a hand and that hand has tiles and those can be things like, you know, housing, factories, parks, various sorts of like residential, or, you know, commercial districts that you would find in a city. And then you lay them down in your city. The twist being you're not building one city, you're building two cities and you're not building them alone. You're building them cooperatively with the players on your left and on your right. And at the end of the game, you're going to get scored based on your lowest scoring city. So, you know, parks are worth more if they're connected to each other. Inns and taverns are worth more depending on how many different types of them you have. You know, there's food ones, lodging ones, those sorts of things. So each of the different types of tiles has different scoring mechanisms, and you have to try to find ways to optimize based on what you have in your hand. Okay, this tile would work best here. This tile would work best here. Sometimes you you know there's not really anywhere that it does work best. You just have to make the most of a bad situation. And then at the end of the game, the city on your left scores 27 points. The city on your right scores 50 points. You're only going to get 27 points. So it's really about striking a balance, which I think is a good lesson to learn for lots of people when playing lots of games, is that you can't... Obviously, there's always going to be min-maxers, but it's very important to come at most games from a starting point of i'm going to look for a balanced approach and then go from there once you sort of start to figure out the strategies yeah and this game really has that you have that slight cooperation between the people on your right and your left and that also helps especially if you have let's say one or two people who are more of the gamers you split them up 
a bit with uh, interspersed with the people who are not gamers so you can you know discuss and say like you know when you reveal the tiles or like you know oh i'm thinking about going to this direction this direction or something like that not technically allowed by the rules the whole discussion yeah, of I mean... which tiles you have but i think for a family game especially the first one when you're trying to explain what the different tiles do and what you need to do to do this whole set collection it helps that you are working with the people to your right and left. Agreed. And that way you can, you know, actually give them tips and do that kind of stuff. So highly recommend that game. A lot of fun and designed by our friend Ben. Yeah, so. that's true. The next games that we want to talk about start going into the more strategic aspect even more than these tiling games. These are the ones that a lot of times are called like the gateway games and other things like that. But... We really enjoy them. We think that your families would too. So the first one is Ticket to Ride. Now, Ticket to Ride is something that we've talked about once or twice before. Very good, very easy intro to strategic thinking in games and strategic placement. Because you're working on this and uh, trying to get your secret objectives done. So you're not showing anyone else and you're trying to connect point A to point B and deciding you know how to do that you draw cards take some from from the revealed cards or you know go for the random ones Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of different just things to think about because you know you don't want to broadcast too much where you're going because then someone else could block you you also don't want to go too roundabout because then again someone maybe not even knowing will just boom connect to something that you needed to connect to and you get the negative points right so a good demonstration of like the risk and that kind of thing in the games, uh, but still a lot of fun, still pretty light and definitely easy to pick up. Right. And it's a very straightforward theme to follow. You know, everybody either was really into trains when they were a kid or knows somebody was really into trains or even just still likes trains today. So <laughs> Jacob points to himself. Um, it's very easy to jump into and have a lot of fun with. One thing that I will say, I would encourage you to get the Europe version rather than the Ticket to Ride original, which is the the U.S., simply because it adds more balance to the game. In the American version, you're taking just four tickets and choosing between those, whereas in the European version, you get three short tickets and one long ticket to choose from. And you can choose to keep them or not keep them, but it's just a way for you to make sure that during the the setup phase, you don't get completely hosed by getting four long tickets that you can't possibly reconcile. There are some other changes as well, including stations and lots of other ways to really make the Europe version, I think, more balanced and much more fun to play. I agree. I agree completely. I think that that's definitely a good version. And both work well with slightly higher player counts. So the Europe version can also work with lower ones much better than the American version. The next game that uh, we want to talk about is Kingdom Builder. Now, Kingdom Builder is a winner of the Buildus Yaris, which is the Game of the Year awards. And that's, I think, back in 2012. Really fun game uh, and really actually quite simple in the mechanics. So you have a area that you just create based on these tiles that you lay down. There are four of them on each map, and when you put them down, they're almost never the same thing. And you have different regions. So you have the flowers, the forests, the meadows, the canyons, and the fields, I believe. That sounds right. And each turn, you draw a card. When you have this this map laid out, 
you then also reveal certain conditions that give you points. So those could be you get one point for every one of your cities that is close to a or next to a mountain mm -hmm. or for the longest connection that you can have or surrounding something like, you know, the, the largest area in one place or something like that. And so these are the goals that everyone has in order to uh, get points at the end of the game. So these are revealed at the start of each turn. You draw a card. That card shows you what type of terrain you are allowed to place in this turn and you go ahead and you place three buildings there once you've placed your buildings if you draw another card that has a terrain type that is adjacent to any of those buildings you have to place there so the adjacency matters it can start you know showing a little bit of the planning aspect of you know i don't want to place this building here because that will mean that i have to place a meadow if i if i draw it I have to place it right next to this one, whereas I want to have my meadows a little bit more open, so I'm going to do it in the middle of this field of flowers or something like that. The rules are very simple, extremely easy to explain, and there are like 10 of them. Right. Kingdom Builder is a really great game because it's so accessible and it's a great introduction to sort of some of the higher order strategic thinking that is required for a lot of other games in terms of how will a play that I make this turn affect me down the line and how will it affect my competitors as well. But then it's also a great way to think about games that have modular scoring components. You know, there's never a situation, I mean, there's a limited number of cards, obviously, but it's very rare that you're going to have a game that has exactly the same scoring mechanics as the last game, which means it's a great way to introduce people to thinking about the core of a game rather than thinking about, okay, this is my end goal and that's going to be the same every single time and sort of learn how to deal with the game one step at a time. Exactly. Another game that, you know, a lot of people have rightfully called a gateway game is Seven Wonders. It's a game in which you start out with a, one of the wonders of the ancient world and over three phases, three rounds, I suppose, you're going to be drafting cards to create a city for yourself. And so that city can have any number of different types of buildings. You've got resource-producing buildings, and then you can use those resources to build scientific buildings, cultural buildings, military buildings. And it's a great introduction to a lot of mechanics that are used in other sorts of games. You've got very strong synergy mechanics between the cards, such that, you know, if you build this particular thing in age one, then in age two, if you have that building, you can build a stronger building for free without having to pay its resource cost. So it's a good way to think about alternative resources and applying pressure where it's smartest, not necessarily strongest. Drafting is obviously a very, very common thing, and this is a great way to get introduced to that. And then quite frankly, I think the flavor is a lot of fun. I think people really enjoy games about building civilizations, and I think it's a great way to introduce what is one of really the more common themes for board games to players who may not be that experienced with contemporary board games. So it's a great one to, to bring home for the holidays. I agree. It was actually one of the first ones that I brought home and started playing, so really fun game. The last one that we really want to talk about is definitely the most advanced one on our list. Oh, for sure. And the reason that we keep it on here is because... It has a lot of really cool aspects, and it can draw in a slightly different, I guess, crowd of people to play it, because it's above and below, and as you may know, it's one of my top shelf games. This is a game that incorporates both 
some worker placement aspects, but a very light area part of that. It also has a really great like exploration and story aspect. And this is where I think you can get some other family members in because if you have, you know, that uncle that loves to embellish on a story or, you know, something like that, it can really scratch that itch. They can, you know, go exploring and like find this and then actually have to choose a an outcome. Right. And that affects the game. And I think that that can really bring people into the game mechanics themselves. So they'll learn that I have to, in order in order to go and explore and get this story or this this part of it and like see what happens down there, I have to make sure that I'm doing something up here in order to prepare for it and something like that. So it is definitely a lot heavier than, or maybe not a lot heavier, but it's definitely heavier than a lot of the other games that we talked about in this special. But... I think that it's still worth taking and like showing your family, especially if you think that they would really enjoy the storytelling aspect of it. Right, I completely agree. It's a lot more mechanically demanding. There's a lot more considerations that you have to think about in terms of, okay, well, what sort of victory condition do I want to go for? Do I want to go resource heavy? Do I want to build lots of buildings? Do I want to focus on getting lots of people and doing lots of spelunking? But the narrative aspect of it and the way that it can draw people in and the way that it's so immersive is just too good to pass up, I think, for introducing people to the broader world of board games. Exactly. We really hope that you enjoyed our family game special. Be sure to tune in next week for our digital game special. So we're going to be talking about the different board games that you can play digitally with your friends over you know, the break, over any time that you're far away from them, and how you can do it. So this is going to include apps, computer games, other things like that, that emulate or create some kind of a platform for you to play board games with your friends, even when you're far away. <laughs>